Welcome to Narrative Now, the podcast where we talk about all things narrative. I'm Ash Barnwell. And I'm Sina Raun. And we are both sociologists at the University of Melbourne with a keen interest in narrative. In this podcast series, we explore new ideas and key issues across narrative research and the many crafts of storytelling. We want to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on Wurundjeri land, where we both live and work, and we pay our respect to elders past and present. Today our podcast takes us to the topic of narratives and counter-narratives in the archive. Which stories about the past do cultural institutions such as libraries and archives tell? And what is missing or silenced in this curation of history and of the present? Is there a role for these and similar institutions in processes connected to social justice as well as restitution for past practices? Our guest today, Rose Barracliffe, is working with just these questions, as both an archivist and a scholar of archival practice. Rose is a bachelor doctoral researcher at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Her research examines the representation of Indigenous peoples in archives and how that impacts historical narratives. In 2021, Rose won the Manda Jones Award for her blog post which focused on collecting practices through the lens of the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprising. That blog started conversations right across Australia about how archival practice was measuring up against institutions' statements of intent and reconciliation action plans. Rose's research outside of her doctorate includes a recent audit of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander original collections at National and State Libraries of Australasia. In 2021, Rose was appointed the inaugural First Nations Archives Advisor to the Queensland State Archives. In addition to her research and advisory role, Rose is also a member of the Healing Foundation's Historic Records Task Force and of the Indigenous Archive Collective. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Rose. Thank you for having me. So, Rose, you're an experienced archivist. So to get us started here today, can you tell us a little bit about your current work and your current projects? Yeah. Okay. So let me backtrack a little bit. I I work in archives and I research archival practice, but Technically, I wouldn't call myself an archivist because I to be an archivist, you have to do a certain course of study. So you have to do a post, post-grad study to, to become an archivist. Um, so it's kind of funny that I've found myself in the positions I have in archives. Um, and I think that comes from um, the fact that I have been looking at archives through my lens, my lived experience as an Indigenous user of archives. And that somehow is quite different to to how an archivist looks at archives. Um, so I think that while I'm not technically an archivist, I've somehow found myself in this role where I'm, where I'm sort of critiquing archives from within. I am the First Nations Archives Advisor at Queensland State Archives, which is probably my primary role outside of my research. Um, and in that capacity, uh, we're quite we're in a unique space somewhat in Queensland at the moment because we're moving towards treaty. So the Queensland government has made this commitment um, and has started the process. There's been community engagement around what would treaty look like and and how how do we go about that as a state? I don't think anyone really had considered how ill-prepared archives are to support truth-telling. 
Um, so as an example, at Queensland State Archives, they have over three and a half million records, um, but only 6.7% of those records have ever been accessed, right? So that drops a, a massive collection from three and a half million down to just over, I think it's like 240,000 records that you're basing your national narrative or your state narratives and your, your culture and your understanding of history, you're basing them off a much smaller base. Um, and then even with those that have, that have been accessed, um, the, the discoverability is the word we use for it is really, really pitiful. So, um, you know, if you, if you went and uh, looked in their online catalogue and typed in, for example, Butchula history, you would, or even just Butchula or any First Nations name, I know from doing the Butchula search, you only get three results, mm. right? So the metadata doesn't support discoverability when we're looking from an Indigenous point of view. Mm. So when it comes to truth-telling, I think the... Um, Everyone, everyone was just expecting, oh, we've got all these records. We'll just go get the records, we'll pull the records off the shelf, and here's all the history, and this is how we're going to do truth-telling. Um, and then I kind of had to go around and explain to everyone, it's not going to work like that. I think possibly when I started the role, um, they were probably hoping for... Um, maybe more bigger bigger picture stuff which certainly we have conversations about that but you can't really do the big picture stuff you know you can't you can't do the narrative stuff until you get in and do the nitty-gritty with the, the building blocks of that narrative um so the result of that is that you know we now are planning to do a huge metadata enrichment program at qsa going forward so hopefully in a few years' time or whenever we do get to that treaty and truth-telling process, we can be closer to that scenario where First Nations communities are coming to the archive and asking for their records and we can just type in their First Nation name and pull up a whole host of records for them. So that's probably the biggest thing that um, that hasn't that wasn't probably anticipated. Mm. The other one that wasn't probably anticipated um, and has become a huge part of my role is just public outreach and explaining to people how important archives and libraries and, and collections are and how relevant they still are, even though these records might be 100 or more years old. They still... Um, have the have incredible relevance to our day to day lives, and um, I see there's a huge difference. I think between how, um, if I think about how people view archives and record keeping in North America, for example, there's a real recognition that it's a space of activism, and you can control your narrative and your dialogue and your perceptions of your community by controlling the records that are kept about you, and driving your own narrative and not allowing someone else to do that for you. Um, we're not in that space in Australia. You mentioned in the introduction Black Lives Matter, which was just a fascinating period for me. Um, but as I watched Twitter um, in the US at, through that period, a lot of the conversation through people I follow was about advising people about how to safeguard what records were being created about them and, you know, how to protect themselves from surveillance. Um, so I think, you know, 
here in Australia, we have this real disconnect, I think, between what an archive is and and our day-to-day lives. But I think, you know, the, when it comes to situations like Black Lives Matter, that is the archive in practice, right? This is collecting happening in real time, but you have to think about what is being collected and what is that going to be used for. But I think the general public doesn't really think about what's recorded about them and also what's not recorded and that's that's mm. a large part of my research yeah. is thinking about well how we because when you when you choose to collect something what an archive or a collecting institution is really saying is that we value these stories therefore we value these people or we value this community um so thinking about, okay, whose stories are not being collected and why and what's who's making those decisions? And, you know, not surprisingly, we find that those decisions are being made by, you know, white heteronormative um, standpoints. Um, and often it's, you know, you're Indigenous or you're Black or, or gendered or sexual or ability, you know, across those those different communities, you find that they're the ones that are not having their stories recorded. That's really interesting. Like, how do you feel, I guess, working, you know, with a state institution that's a collecting body that's doing all that work, like it has past collections, but also, you know, collecting in the present and then the relationship, I guess, with these smaller community archives that might be quite resistant, actually, to partnering with state institutions for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, have you found situations where you're kind of setting up dialogues between? Um, where, well, at Queensland State Archives is kind of just at the very beginning of that that relationship building stage. Um, so they've they've kept very separate from community, um, which I think, you know, if you look at colonial institutions or colonial collecting institutions, they have done that intentionally. And it's especially when you look at state archives, the their reason for being is that they are collecting government records. So therefore they see themselves as being in service to government traditionally. But that's all changed with the Tandanya Declaration, where now the understanding is, well, no, actually, we're in service to the citizens. Um, well, sorry, I should just clarify that. that in, in theory, they're always in service to the citizens because the, the reason we have those archives is for a government accountability and transparency. That's why we have them. But still, they see that the control of the records lies with the government, not with the people. Um, so that is that is definitely changing, um, and so um, Queensland State Archives, particularly, is working really hard to try and build those relationships direct to community now, and they're doing that through, um, for example, they have a languages program where they're trying to find any archival records that have Indigenous languages in them, and inviting community in to to look at them and understand them. Um, and then they have another project that is about to sort of hit hit the stage um, about First Wars records and, and colonial violence and that will have a community engagement um, or community decision-making component to it going forward. Um, so we, I'm yet to see how that's going to play out. Um, but the, the thing that I keep reiterating in all my work is that all of this needs to be in service of Indigenous self-determination, 
So you really just have to ask communities what they want and then support them in being able to achieve that. Um, And anything outside of that is probably not appropriate. We also wanted to ask you about um, your own research project. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So actually how how I came to archives... It, it seems crazy to say this now, but I had never even stepped foot in an archive until 2017, which is not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I um, I was at a conference with my mum. I my, my mum's glorified chauffeur half the time. <laughs> so um, she had asked me to drive her to this conference, which was on the University of Sunshine Coast campus. Um, and it was it's a conference that happens or a symposium or summit, I'm not sure what they call it, but anyway, it happens annually and it's about our traditional country. So it's the Gurry Symposium. Gurry is uh, also known as Fraser Island, so it's that's part of our traditional country. And and USC has um, they have a research station on there and they do lots of projects on there. So they help host this this conference every year. Um, so we're sitting in the audience, myself, my mum, some community members, some of the elders, some of our um, board members for our Aboriginal corporation. And one of the USC librarians is presenting about this great new archive they've got and how very excited. Um, and it's about Gari and they've called it the Gari Research Archive. Only problem is none of the butchers had ever heard of it. So you can imagine that didn't go down particularly well. Um, so when the elders asked if they could see the archive, while the librarians were very supportive of that, they said it has no Indigenous content. Mm-hmm. So it's not probably not relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, which, you know, the elders were like, well, we'll be the judge of that. Thank you very much. I became really interested in, you know, Firstly, why is there an archive about our traditional country using our language name for that country, for the archive? Why does it have so little butchler representation in the archive? Um, and, you know, how did that come to be? Like, how can, you, how can you build an archive about our traditional country and not involve us? Um, so I got really interested in, in not so much the record content but the how and why of this comes to be. And then, of course, um, someone, who one of the lecturers there who knew we were doing the work came in and said, you know, you could be doing this as a postgrad. I was like, really? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, so I that's how I started looking at archives and and. Um, and still, my research is very much from an Indigenous standpoint. Um, so one of the things that occurred to me very early on, you know, there's there's this notion that has been around since 1978, probably earlier, but um, of called the right to know. So in records, you have the right to know about any records about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, uh, this sort of came as... Um, um, uh, one of the demands from a, um, a First Nations scholar in the United States called Vine Deloria as part of their treaty, um, you know, review. Like, well, we have the right to know about any of your, any records about us and, and you need to give us an index of all these records and we should be able to control them and all this sort of stuff. So that's back in 1978. So this has become a, a, a fundamental right in archives for Indigenous people. 
Um, but what occurred to me when I was looking at the Gary Research Archive was that if we accept that sovereignty was never ceded and that First Nations people are still the sovereign owners of their traditional country, then really that right to know has to extend beyond personal records and it has to include any records about our country. Because if you think about how Australia interacts with any other nation, they respect that those records relate to that nation, right? So if you go, again, if we go back to the example of Queensland State Archives, if you go and search for Butchula, you'll find three records. Mm -hmm. But if you go and search for Monaco or Liechtenstein or any other really small nation about the same size as ours, both economically and geographically, you will find thousands and thousands of records because they identify that nation in the record metadata. They respect that that nation is part of that process. Um, So my argument with my research is that we should be doing the same with records about um, First Nations traditional country and respecting that they have the right to know about anything that really has happened on their country since colonisation, before and since. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating, that idea of the metadata, you know, the stories about the stories Mm -hmm. and how much that impacts, like, what we can and can't find. Yeah, it's huge. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely... And I don't... Yeah, it's... For me, that is the one thing we can change that will dramatically change our ability to be able to build our narratives about our our country or whatever we're trying to do. But right now there's this huge block between all this knowledge that's stored in these records in colonial archives um, and what we want to do with those records. It's just simply not possible unless you go sit in an archive, in a reading room and spend hours or days, years for most researchers and you're reading through every single page. So you spoke earlier about, you know, the silences <clears throat> that are um, sort of a result, I guess, um, of, of archival practices. And uh, the metadata, the metadata, as you're just talking about now, are really key to to those silences. But I guess it's also about what you said earlier on about, like, you know, archives as being sort of um, the holders of what is seen to be worthy to know or like you know what we need to know or want to know want to preserve about the past or this is the story we should tell um people in the like tell future generations about who we are and you know our culture all of those things so like how how can some of those other you know the collecting practices and those kinds of things be remedied or how can we work at that level i can see with the metadata project can can do but I guess yeah. there's other aspects to those sil- or like that feed into creating those silences yeah. as well. So that's the appraisal process, mm-hmm. which is the decision about what to collect. Mm. Um, and I think that the single most important thing that needs to be done is we need more diversity in the those teams that are making those appraisal decisions. Um, so you know, Gurry Research Archive is a perfect example. Had there have been a bachelor person involved in that appraisal process, um, the the archive would look very different and the records that are in it would, would look very different. So I think that's, that is far and away one of the most important things. Um, but 
I also argue that, you know, we don't need to ask permission from anyone else to build our own representation. So I would love to see um, identity-based communities building their own archives. And we do somewhat see this with social media now. We see, you know, social media has been a huge um, leveller in some cases where people can put forward their own narratives and, and have an audience that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, so I think there's ways and means of doing it, you know, and I find that a lot of collecting institutions only want to talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when it's a good news story, right? They don't want to engage with any of the really hard conversations. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, and it's difficult to do because a lot of them are government agencies and the people that work in them are public servants and they have signed code of conduct agreements where they, you know... So there's there's all these controls about that sort of stuff. But then at the, in that same period in Canada, there was um, there was a bit of strife going on in eastern Canada where there was uh, disagreements between um, First Nation fishers, lobster fishers, and and um, non-Indigenous lobster fishers. And it was about the um, the First Nations lobster fishers were allowed to fish out of the commercial seasons because that was part of their treaty. But so that had resulted in disagreements and I think they burnt down some of the First Nations warehouses and stuff like that. So it was becoming an issue. And the um, National Archive, without saying who was right or who was wrong, simply just posted... Um, here's some information about the treaty so you can educate yourself. So it's simply just putting the information out there. They don't have to say or give an opinion on what they think um, or how they think the process should be going, but simply saying there is information here for you to educate yourself about this. And that's what I would have liked to have seen during Black Lives Matter in Australia, especially when we had a Prime Minister saying we didn't have slavery in this country, when there is so much evidence that proves that we did, you know. So when there's intentional disinformation happening and we have we have records that can disprove that, I feel that collecting institutions, it is their responsibility to make it known that there, are, there is information about this that everyone can access. Um, otherwise, what's the point of the records? Mm-hmm. You know, it's there to inform our conversations and to, to promote understanding of our history. But if we're not using those records, then I'm, I'm not sure they're that relevant. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess making sure that people even know they're there. Yeah. You know, and it's for them to access. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, so... You know, I was saying at QSA, there's there's all those records, and then but only so many of them dis- are discoverable. And yet, within that tiny pool of discoverable records, we have a researcher who's been working there, um, looking for colonial violence records. So, in that small pool, he's already found over four thousand records that document colonial violence. So, you know. There's so many records there and it actually doesn't take that much to find them if you know where to look. Um, But we really need to get better at taking those records out of the institution. I don't necessarily mean physically, but I mean Mm. we need artists, we need writers, we need historians, we need researchers to be using these records 
and talking about them and making them accessible through interpretation to the rest of the population. Mm. I'm interested in the the things you've been saying around outreach and um, what our listeners may not know about you, Rose, is that you also have a creative streak. (laughs) (laughs) And um, in your exhibited film series, Reading Between the Lines, you worked with visual and audio narratives, um, partly with about your extended family. Um, And I wondered if I could ask you what it was like to work with family and also, you know, to navigate telling a story that was at once personal and also important in that broader social sense as well. Mm. Um, It was fantastic to work with family. It was such a gift of my research. Um, So my mum was stolen generations and um, she didn't meet, in fact, there's one of her siblings she still hasn't found, but she, you know, I remember her reconnecting with the, a lot of her siblings as an adult, like I was an adult with some of them. Um, um, and two of my aunts that I interviewed in my research, I had only met in, I think it was 2018, um, at my nan's funeral, who I also didn't know. I'd met her once before. But um, so the the research sort of gave me a pathway to reconnect with family um, and also not through my mum, which was kind of important as well because they have their own relationship. Um, and so I wanted to connect with them directly. So the research allowed me to do that. And, um, you know, we're a huge family on both sides of my mum's family's family, like my maternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother both come from massive Indigenous families. Um, So it was, yeah, it was amazing to be able to reach out to some of them through the research. Um, And the the thing that most... um, like affected me from that I think was that they were just so generous like a with their time but also with their story and their their vulnerability um and I you know I really appreciated that and I think listening back through the interviews and when I was doing the transcribing just enabled me to it just I got a new level of appreciation every time I did that um and So one thing I had decided when I started the research is that I didn't want to tell anyone's personal story. Um, I just felt like that might be a bit too fraught with issues and I didn't want to go down that path. Um, But every single one of my interviewees spoke about my great-grandmother. So as I was transcribing, her name just kept coming up and up and up and I thought, oh... I feel like I need to tell her story. Um, So I spoke to my mum and to my aunts and said, do you think this is okay? And they're like, well, yeah, that's why we told you the story. (laughs) (laughs) Duh. Um, So, um, yeah, so um, her story, so Topsy, became one of, I think there's seven um, in the mini documentary series, became one of those documentaries that was just about her and her story um not in huge detail but you know enough that I felt like she was being honored in that process um and you know her story was 
it is hugely important to our family. So it's not like um, I couldn't, I don't think I could have told that story about our connection to country and each other without having included that. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, research, you don't, you don't realise these things until you're near the tail end, right? And it, it's like, oh, of course, why didn't I see that at the beginning? But, of course, if you knew that, then you probably wouldn't have to do the research, would you? Mm, that's right. And how did you find working in the visual medium to tell those stories? Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So, you know, like you were saying before, it was, it's quite hard working on Zoom because I had to do that. I had intended to do face-to-face yarns with family, but, of course, COVID happened and... Um, so I've got terrible audio in there as well and, you know, all that sort of thing. You make do with what you've got. Um, but um, I didn't really have a clear picture of what I wanted the exhibition because I exhibited the mini documentary series as, you know, my artefact for my doctoral research. Um, so I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted that to look like. But when, again, when I was listening back through those interviews it just became really clear to me that I needed to represent country. Uh, like, country was such a tangible part of the, the story that it needed to be in there as well. It couldn't just be um, listening to people's voices. So, and the other decision I had made, or there's two other decisions I had made, I didn't want the archival records to be in the exhibition because it wasn't about them. They'd already had their story and that narrative had already been told. So I really wanted to focus just on the Butchler participants' response to that and that was the main story. So it's kind of a counter-narrative, but I also think that, you know, um, um, I think it's Bell Hawks talks about how working from the margins, it's not always about counter, it's about centering like, okay, you know, the dominant story's over there, but that doesn't mean we're responding to you. We're just going to sit over here and do our own thing. So it was about that. So I didn't want any of the archival records in the documentary series, and none of them were. Um, and the other thing is that I was very, from the get-go, I only wanted non-literate um, record-keeping storytelling as part of it to honour the fact that Indigenous record-keeping is non-literate. So... Um, <laughs> which kind of made it hard originally because I was like, well, what do I display then? If I'm not <laughs> displaying the records, um, what, am I, what am I going to have in this documentary series? And I didn't want to tell personal records. And, of course, the answer is country. And the other side of that was that, you know, I think when, when you disseminate research through publication or through uh, a thesis well, thesis particularly, so few people get to see that or read that, right? And certainly my family are probably never going to read my exegesis. Um, but they all came to my exhibition mm-hmm. and all my colleagues. So I got to share my research in a way that people engaged with, which was, yeah, I, I think that's probably what got me through, to be honest with you. I think if I had to just write it up, I'd, yeah, I'd be toast by now. <laughs> <laughs> I really love what you said about, you know, the we can talk about narratives and counter-narratives, but then also how we, we don't necessarily need to think about in the counter-narrative, but it can also be a different story that is, you know, taking its own starting point and not necessarily a reaction to that already existing narrative there. Um, so that's super fascinating, and but also interesting in thinking about, you know, the different sort of 
actors, I guess, in this space. And so maybe that's one role for state archives or, you know, those kinds of institutions um, and another for community archives or grassroots um, storytellers or, um, or, yeah. I think there's space for both. Mm -hmm. I think there's space for all. Um, And I think it just makes it, it... richer for everyone if you can you can source these stories from from different places but i do think that as a state and as a nation we need to reach a basic understand a basic shared understanding about what our historical narratives are because right now they're very disparate Mm -hmm. um and the the lived experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is mostly omitted or only known in pockets. Um, so I think, you know, even things like, you know, I ask the question and I'll admit I don't know the answer to this, you know, how many First Nations do we have in Queensland? No one can answer that question at this point in time. And even that would be hard for a lot of reasons, A, because colonisation has been quite successful. Um, but... But, you know, I think those are just the most fundamental things we should know. Um, You know, most people could name more countries in Europe than they can Mm -hmm. First Nations on this continent. So I think there's there's space for everyone to tell their own story and everyone should be able to tell their own story. But also we if we are going to have cohesion as a society, there needs to be a a collection of stories that we can all agree on and and hopefully be proud of some of them. And I think some of that pride has to come from overcoming the really tough stuff. Mm -hmm. Truth-telling can't just be on the shoulders of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And in fact, because we're only 3% of the population, it won't happen unless everyone else gets involved. And I know some non-Indigenous people who come from these families have already stepped up and, and owned it. But we've got a lot more that are probably sitting there just going, oh, I hope no one <laughs> notices. But it's like, you know, there's records of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no way we're not going to talk about it. It's It has to be part of the healing process of understanding how everyone has been involved in this history. Mm, and it's interesting how you're saying, you know, there's such a role for people who work with narrative in all different kinds of way to in different ways to, you know, bring those stories out of silence in the archives and, and you know, it's, it's, I'm just astounded by, as you're saying, such a small amount of things have actually even been accessed. Mm. Yep. I mean, I think it's funny. So in the past... In the past week, I've been in two two different meetings with one with um, history teachers and one with, who was the other one with might have been lawyers talking about how intimidating they find archives. I'm like, oh my god, this is kind of your field, right? Mm-hmm. Record like history and evidence. This is what you people do. Mm-hmm. So if they're finding archives intimidating, imagine someone who doesn't even work in those areas. So there's. There's a lot of work that archives need to do, and they know this, mm-hmm. generally speaking, but, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make records um, a- able to be used, essentially. Maybe that's a good um, note to try and wrap up the conversation. Yes. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Rose. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Narrative Now. I'm Ash Barnwell. And I'm Sina Raun. And this episode was produced by the wonderful Kenna McTavish. 
If you liked what you just heard, you can make sure you don't miss the next episode of Narrative Now by subscribing to this podcast wherever you usually find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter via the handles ash underscore Barnwell and raven underscore Sine and keep up to date on our events via the Narrative Network website. Stay tuned for our next episode. Yeah.